If you're not allowed to write from outside your own experience, you can only write novels which contain one voice. And so we're basically saying that Roland walked up and down, collecting rocks, laying them out, rearranging them, muttering. Later, I decided in some way. You haven't worked as a gangland enforcer? <laughs> no, I, not yet. <laughs> I think it was I had before. It was not her fault. There was no fault. There was a great confluence of circumstance, the many strands of history, his physical life, think about him. So I think fiction really is a conversation. That conversation can only really be had if we take leaps of imagination, leaps of faith with our imagination, and continue to try and get in each other's heads. So let the conversation begin. Hello and welcome to the Fictional Podcast with me, Richard Lee. One year on from our first edition, we're expanding our podcast so we can hear more from our amazing authors. Last week we heard from Joyce Carol Oates. I don't know that I've said this to anybody before. It's a kind of double... Talking about and reading from her short story, Small Veins. The statement hovers in the air like a trapped moth fluttering. Over the next few weeks, we'll be joined by José Falero and his translator Maria Jacqueline Evans, Donald McLaughlin and Sabah Khan. But this programme is all about Fiona Mosley and her story Kader Idris. When I met Mosley in a noisy café, en route to the ceremony where she was admitted as a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, she started by reading from the opening of Kader Idris. It isn't my fault, she said again, her voice faint on the line. This meant she thought it was. The more vehemently my mother asserts an opinion, the more certain it is she is disguising her doubt. I reassured her as I had before. It was not her fault. There was no fault. There was a great confluence of circumstance, the many strands of history, his physical ill health, the desperate times. It was all of it and none of it. But there was significance in the choice of destination, whether we spoke of it or not. She'd holidayed on this coastline as a child, her father driving the family along thin, dusty roads in an Austin A40, long before the motorways were built. She hadn't crossed the Welsh border since we'd buried her mother, though nobody mentioned it. That was nearly 20 years ago. She'd booked Barmouth before she'd noticed the alterations in Roland's personality. When she had, she'd phoned me. We agreed to go ahead anyway, watch for trouble, make the necessary plans. What did Dad say? Dad agrees. The cottage was a little way out of town, overlooking the estuary, where the silty fresh water rolled out to meet the salt. Unremitting sunshine, a buoyant breeze, sparkling hills on both sides. The first evening was spent eating fish and chips on the seafront, mushy peas and cold beer. My parents were distracted and picked at the greasy batter. Afterwards, the seagulls did well. We spent the second day on the beach. Mum and Dad read. Maggie swam, wearing the swimsuit she'd bought when we were in France the summer before. I watched her, waved at her, took wide, pointless photographs of the landscape with her at the centre. Roland walked up and down, collecting rocks, laying them out, rearranging them, muttering. Later, I decided to climb Kader Idris. Just you and Roland, my dad replied when I suggested it after dinner. Get him out of the house while we get everything sorted, my mother added. Just me and Roland. Me and Roland it is then. With Kada Idris lurking unseen above us, I started by asking her where this climb up the mountain began. My mum was born and raised in Wales. 
We took a family holiday to Barmouth a few years ago, though we hadn't been there for a very, very long time. And it got me thinking about Wales as a place and the surrounding countryside. When we were there, we climbed Cad Idris. It's the second largest mountain in Wales after Snowdon. So we climbed that and there's this legend about it, which is that if you go up to the top and you spend the night, you come back down either mad or a poet. So which was it? <laughs> well, with me, I think it must have been a poet, although <laughs> I'm, I'm not a poet, I'm a novelist, and those are two very different things. I don't know, maybe you have to be a bit mad to be a novelist as well, so it's a bit of both. But it was also an interesting way of thinking about the distinction between those two things. I mean, people often collide the two together, don't they? And there's this idea of creativity or artistic merit being connected with mental ill health which I think is largely an unhelpful connection, um, I think, actually, to produce anything creative. You need, you, you need to be in a good situation at least some of the time. It's a kind of romantic notion, isn't it, that it's just... Whoa. Yeah, it is a romantic notion, and people always think of it to do with people like Virginia Woolf or Sylvia Plath. They read um, Woolf's novels and Plath's poetry in terms of the ill health and the final destination that both those figures took. That's unhelpful, particularly if you read Wolf's diaries, you see how stultifying her mental illness was. And actually, she was desperate for times of good health and times of being on the up in, in order to produce her novels. And actually, she could have written much, much more if it wasn't for the mental health issues that she faced. There are probably a lot of, a lot of novelists, a lot of poets, a lot of playwrights who do have issues with their minds, you know, psychiatric illness... But I think actually the creativity comes at moments of abeyance. And it's also an excuse for people in a sense. If they find it difficult to produce or difficult to write, they say, oh, well, I couldn't because I'm not like that. I think so. And I think, I think, that's, I think that's a shame because I don't think the connection always holds. I think actually when I, when I think of you know, my peers and the, the writing that I really admire, I just see this huge kind of energy coming from people and this wonderful sort of desire to be in the world and to be sort of in the thick of reality, as it were. And actually people I know who've suffered from poor mental health have really found it completely contrary to any kind of creativity or creative process. Does a disservice that way around as well? Because mental health is a desperate thing for the people who are suffering with their mental health. It's not a kind of nice add-on that goes with your creative life. No, it can be completely all-consuming. It can completely destroy lives and, in fact, destroy sort of families and friendships. It, it's, it's not something to be romanticised mm. at all, but it has been for centuries. Mm. And it's certainly there at the heart of this legend about Kader Idris. You come down as one or the other and the suggestion is maybe there's a connection between the two, maybe it's both. One of the things you set out to do with this story was try to explore mental illness. Yes, it was. I was thinking about people who get to this stage in their life where something tragic or really difficult happens within a family. And I was thinking about that in terms of homecoming. And I decided to put mental ill health at the centre of the story, partly because of the legend, but partly also because I wanted it to be a bittersweet homecoming. I wanted there to be a sense that this family were going back to a place that was significant to them, but actually all sorts of things had changed since they were last there. The direction of their lives had gone slightly askew. You know, I wanted this family to be really sort of on the brink of huge change, huge transition and I wanted the story to sort of have the opportunity to look back at the nicer times but also confront its central focus which is this relationship between these two brothers, one of whom is the narrator so we suspect maybe a writer or a poet and one of whom is suffering from psychosis specifically. Your narrator recognises something in himself when he realises he's pattern matching like Roland but his brother's mental illness is still opaque, a murky meniscus between him and me as he says. If fiction at some level is all about empathy do characters suffering from mental illness present a particular challenge? 
writers are very different and they tackle different things. I've always been the kind of writer to really try and put myself in other people's shoes. I'm not somebody who really writes from life in a very obvious way, although it's always connected in some in some sense to something I've experienced or some kind of reality, you know, because it's such a particular experience, I suppose, psychosis. Having seen people go through that, it is so unusual and it is so different from anything that most people, thankfully, will go through. It's kind of a case of taking it from the outside side and looking towards it so that's why for example I didn't have the main character suffer from psychosis himself it's his brother so he's looking on so he's taking the role of the reader where it's something that's actually very difficult for him to understand and for him to get his head round so we're kind of all going on the same journey. Were you conscious of trying to get the details right were you kind of poring over medical textbooks and so on? Yeah I did I looked at a sort of a lot of first-hand testimonies that I could find there's a lot on the internet I mean YouTube is really great for this because people who have experienced these things themselves often you know like to record videos about what they've gone through to raise awareness and to really inform people that it's possible to live a normal healthy productive life with some of these symptoms yeah there are huge resources around um, so I watched videos I read I read a lot I mean I was also reading Freud um, at the time I'm not sure how helpful that was but um, <laughs> he's such a wonderful writer and so interesting even when you feel like he's maybe not hitting the nail on the head he's doing it in a really really sort of interesting way and and I also talk to people I know who've experienced different kinds of mental ill health. There was a lot of different influences on this particular story and I really did try and make it as accurate as possible, you know, and I tried to avoid too many caricatures. I didn't want there to be voices in the head on the page. I wanted that, again, to be slightly in the distance. I reworked it and reworked it and tried to get that balance right between showing what was going on and also having a bit of subtlety about it. Where do you sit on the increasingly heated debate about whether writers of fiction can tell stories that aren't really their own? So I'm pretty firmly in the camp that writers can tell stories that aren't their own, although I've not always been so clear on that. Both my novels are outside my own experience Elmet, my first novel, was set in a landscape I knew very well and set within a community I kind of lived within or next to, adjacent to, I'd say. But it was, you know, entirely a work of imagination. And then Hot Stew drew on some of my own experiences, but there were so many characters that there was absolutely no possibility of them all being similar to me in some way. And you I... haven't worked as a gangland enforcer? <laughs> no, I... not yet. <laughs> I think it was the writing of Hot Stew and the promotion of Hot Stew which really consolidated my stance on this because it just occurred to me that if you're not allowed to write from outside your own experience, you can only write novels which contain one voice. And so we're basically saying that the multi-voice narrative can't exist. If that's the case, then I, I no longer want to write and I no longer want to read. That said, you know, this can get polarised people who are sort of maybe in my camp, as it were, in inverted commas, who kind of um, caricature the criticisms of the other side, as it were, because actually there are very valid criticisms of the way some groups of people have been depicted in fiction, particularly people from oppressed groups, and that is worth having a conversation about, and it's worth looking through your own writing and trying to recognise when you have harmful tropes or when you're caricaturing those characters. You know, all of that is really important, that's just about being a good writer, being conscious of the kind of political currents of the time, of being socially aware. But I think you can absolutely write characters that you're not like. 
it requires not only for writers to, who want to write outside their experience to do the work, but it also requires readers, as we all are, to read with a certain amount of generosity. And we gain something from all these different perspectives. If I belong to a particular group, it's 30-something white queer woman in, you know, in the global north. And if, if somebody, you know, a straight white man, were to write a character that was very much like me, a gay woman in her 30s, and I know this might sound strange, but I would learn something from that. I would learn about his perspective. If he was trying to make that kind of imaginative leap where he was trying to get inside my head, he would probably not get it right because we can't ever truly know other people. But I would learn something from his perspective, even if I didn't like it, even if I found it uncomfortable, even if I found it annoying. There'd be some merit in that. And likewise, if I were to turn the mirror back on him and write a straight white man, which I have done, um, <laughs> you know, I would hope that he would maybe learn something from my perspective. Even if he's reading the story, reading that character, thinking, oh, this is a load of old rubbish. Um, he's, still, he's still having a mirror sort of focused on him and he's still learning about what I think about him. So I think fiction really is a conversation. That conversation can only really be had if we take leaps of imagination, leaps of faith with our imagination and continue to try and get in each other's heads. One way that Kade Idris is definitely a Fiona Mosley story is the way it relishes the landscape, the silty freshwater rolling out to meet the salt in the estuary, or the three ascending peaks coiled about the lake, that awful bracken. Do you go looking for the natural world when you're writing, or does it worm its way in? A bit of both. I mean, in the most basic sense, it's how I situate a character. So it's how I know where they're going, how they're moving around, what they're feeling, what they're thinking. You know, they have to be in a place. And once they're in a place, I have a tendency to want to describe it as richly as I can. That said, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think in a way I've been trying to pull back from that, <laughs> from that a little bit. I'm <laughs> I guess I've, I've got a bit of an awkward personality in the sense that if I get known for something, I want to push against it. That's certainly why my, my second novel, Hot Stew, is so different from my first Elmet. This story, I think, does have kind of landscape description, but I, I tried to kind of uh, limit myself a bit in terms, of, in terms of how deep to go into that kind of, um, into that landscape. In, even in Hot Stew, the landscapes, they're underneath Soho, isn't it? It's, <laughs> it's bubbling up. Yeah, I just couldn't help it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I write about Soho as a kind of forest as well. So, yeah, I, I couldn't help it. There's always something sylvan going on in my, in my writing. Um, yeah, but I think it's how I get into the characters and how I think about their textual experience within the text. Because it's not just window dressing, is it? This whole story is about the mountain and about a legend surrounding the mountain and about the process of walking up it and walking down it, which mirrors the journey that this character has gone on. You know, he's watched his brother grow up and ascend to something that he thinks is remarkable you know we have glimmers of that in the brothers sort of performer mountaineering and then he's watched this descent um so it's got the kind of the up and the down motion within it writing the landscape is important for creating those parallels those those links another way is the connection with people who are marginalized is that a conscious correction to comfortable middle class fiction or are those just the stories you're drawn to I like all sorts of different kinds of books, so I would never say that I sort of would, you know, discount a whole genre. I do get a little bit tired of the kind of neat middle-class stories about wandering around Bloomsbury or Primrose Hill. Um, I mean, which is perhaps because I don't don't live in those lush, <laughs> lush, nice places, so I'm sort of looking into them from outside. I mean, I do think that we have a duty to explore other people's experiences, and I do think that there's something in taking a marginalised character and putting them in the centre, whether they're the main focus or whether they're maybe secondary to the plot but still kind of integral in, in their own way. I'm drawn to people who are struggling. I'm drawn to people who have experiences that are different 
from mine. I'm interested in what we can learn from taking the margins and pushing them towards the middle and pushing the middle out a bit. Are you not just interested? Are you also trying to make a difference? I would like to think so. I mean, I'm maybe a little bit pessimistic about how much good a novel can do, you know, because the readership is, um, <laughs> you know, is well, we won't go into it, but <laughs> there's maybe sometimes um, the issue of preaching to the choir. It's a small contribution, but it's, it's a contribution I can make. We'll keep singing along. That was Fiona Mosley. To read Kader Idris, as well as brand new stories from Joyce Carol Oates, José Falero, translated by Maria Jacqueline Evans, Donald McLaughlin, and a graphic short story from Sabah Khan, search for Fictionable on your mobile, tablet, laptop, or internet-ready hiking boots. You'll get a year's worth of exclusive new short stories and comics for £20. Look for subscribe in the drop-down menu on the right-hand side. You'll also get unlimited access to our ever-growing archive of stories from writers including Sarah Hall, Yan Liancourt, Lady Hubbard and Lizzie Stewart. We'd love to hear what you make of our extended podcast as well as all our blogs and stories. So add us on Mastodon, Instagram or Twitter or step back in time and send us an email old school on info at fictionable.world. Next time, José Falero will be issuing a call to the barricades. There is a way for us to move to a more egalitarian society, and that's to pass through the social upheaval for people to no longer... Translated and voiced by Maria Jacqueline Evans, who will also be reading from her translation of Falero's story, Flash of Dignity. But for now, all I need to do is thank Fiona Mosley, and say from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Esther Pokujeni, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.